from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Okay, so, so the whole point of uh, Lisa Pathfinder, as I said, is to enable a study of the universe using gravitational waves with Lisa. And um, the mission <coughs> that mission has been studied extensively. We have a very good idea of the sources that we will be able to, to hear when we start listening to the universe. And uh, the, the, uh, the plans are so well advanced because it's been studied since uh, the middle of the 1990s that we actually have a soundtrack of what it will, of what it will actually detect. And I hope you, this will work and you'll be able to hear this. Ah. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong screen. So this is a simulated data stream um, up frequency to be in the audible. When I get to the end of the talk, I'll play this again and I'll explain exactly what you're hearing. But this is, um, this is essentially three years of simulated data, just upscaled in frequency so that you can hear it. And the thing to take away with what you've heard at the moment is, A, you probably don't understand it, which of course is as expected. For even when we hear it, we probably won't understand all of it or even half of it. But the other thing is, is that the richness of the different types of signal that you were actually hearing. I'll come back to that later though. So, so what are these gravitational waves? Well, um, the nearest I can get to that is, is, to, is to present the usual picture of general relativity uh, uh, where Einstein treated space-time as an elastic continuum in, in which everything is embedded. And the point is that when you embed things with mass in the continuum, continuum and everything has mass really, um, it produces an indentation in space-time. And so the motion of something which is moving along uh, first off, it will be affected by the fact that, it's, that it sees a dip here and it sort of will, will tend to fall into it, and that then is essentially the way Einstein thought about the force of gravity. But the other thing is that if, a, if any of these objects actually move, then the overall shape of space-time changes as they move around relative to each other. And of course, for a distant observer who's sort of way off screen here, they will only find out about the fact that these things are moving because as they move, they distort this bit of space-time. And it's a bit like a stone in a pond. Those, the the space-time the distortions then ripple away uh, out to inform the rest of the universe that something has moved. And so that's how I like to think of the, the, the so-called gravitational waves, are ripples in the very fabric of space-time caused by the relative motion of, of masses embedded in that space-time. And here's a, uh, a simulation that is just what you would expect if there were two stars orbiting around each other. And this just shows clearly how what radiates away from that particular object of two stars orbiting around each other is a, is a ripple that appears to, 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 to ripple away from the source of the radiation. <coughs> and uh, 
And so how do we detect those? Well, the way we detect them is, is by realizing that if you were to have a circle um, in space-time and a gravitational wave from, a, from a, um, a, a binary star system that's orbiting around a common center of mass here is producing gravitational waves, what happens is that as it passes th through this, this, what started out as a circular distribution of objects or whatever it is, they, that distribution would, would first be distorted in one direction, it would elongate in this direction, say, then it would return to its original circular shape and then it would elongate in the, in the other direction. You can see here, the, the, uh, and then back to circular and then again. So, so as far as these, this, um, the, the, this circle of objects is concerned here, um, the effect of the gravitational waves is to distort its shape. And we, we describe the, uh, the extent to which it, ex it uh, distorts that space as a strain, which is the change in length, say, between one across the diameter with the actual length itself. So, and, and uh, the gravitational waves, when I talk about um, the amplitude of the gravitational waves, what I'm effectively talking about is this number here, the strain in space-time. Although there's a, there's a factor of two which you don't need to worry about, but, but the formal definition looks like this, but just with another factor of two. So the business of trying to look for gravitational waves is really to, to, to look for changes in displacement of, of uh, objects relative to their starting position. <coughs> and the most precise way we have of doing that is through interferometry, down here. And, uh, and um, so the, the most common type of interferometer is a Michelson interferometer. And essentially, you, you can look for changes in the distance between here and here, relative changes, um, to incredible precision. Exactly what we need, I will tell you later. And so we are measuring this strain in space-time using interferometry. Oh, there was a... Uh, okay, let's go ahead. So, um, so just a little bit more detail on that, not too much, but... Uh, so, so here again is our, is our circle of objects that, that we've uh, put in space somewhere. And as the wave comes through, you'll now see that it's, it's denoted in terms of H. Uh, H over 2 is the same as the strain, delta L over L, that I mentioned previously. So there's the factor of 2. So, um, <coughs> so, so here's the wave, and you can see it first uh, moving, uh, distorting the objects in one direction and then distorting them in another direction. But in the same way that light has two polarizations, so does a gravitational wave. And so there are actually two variants possible on the way the distortions can occur. One of them looks like this, and the other one looks like that. And, and the difference is in the detailed um, movement that if you focus on any particular object, you can see that the... So you have to come across to wherever it is, this one here, I guess. This one's going up and down here, but it's going in and out on that one. Okay, so... Um, um, so that's what we are trying to do with, with LISA, is, is, is to put not as many objects of, as this in space, but just three, <coughs> and to then measure the distances between them extremely accurately so that we can look to see if they are performing these periodic motions. I'll come back to the detail of how we do that uh, a little bit later on. What I'm going to do now is to, is to show you what we can achieve with um, very modest interferometry, um, but with really large separations between the, two, the, uh, the, the objects that we're studying. Because the signal that, that I showed you, this, this H, is, 
the change in distance divided by the, by the distance itself, and, but what we're measuring here is the change in the distance. So to make that change in distance as big as we can, we separate the masses as far as we can in space. And we're going to, with Lisa, we're going to put them hopefully about 5 million kilometres apart. So, so, so each of the, the three that we use will be 5 uh, million kilometres apart in space. And uh, all, the, all, the, uh, uh, all of the detail that I now give on the types of object that we will be able to see is based on uh, an instrument of that type with, with that separation. And performing interferometry at the level where we can see something like uh, we can see changes in distance, periodic changes in distance. We're not measuring absolute distance, we measure changes in distance. Um, something like a hundredth the size of an atom which is actually very modest interferometry compared with what you can do on the ground. Um, okay, so, so here's a, obviously an artist's impression of um, what the sky might look like if we were to go out and detect loads of sources and just plot them on the sky to see, to see what it looks like. It's plotted in what we call galactic coordinates, which means that this strip across the centre here is our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So all of these points here are sources within our own Milky Way galaxy. The centre of the galaxy is here, and if you uh, so, so uh, and our galaxy looks like a disc. So 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 as you as you start out in the centre, and you go along here, what you're doing is you're is you're, is you're looking round the disc of our galaxy. As you move out from the centre uh, up and down, you're you're then looking out of the plane of our galaxy, and so you can see much more clearly what's happening behind it, at least in the optical, and. Uh, and so you can, you can see that there are three favourite types of sources which are plotted on here. Uh, and I would say this, this, this view you see here is actually uh, uh, um, many, many years old. Um, so so there are the, 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 there's this group of objects which are dotted within our own galaxy. And those are what we call galactic binaries. So these are typically just pairs of stars that are very close together and orbiting around their common centre of mass. And because they're orbiting, they're producing gravitational waves. I said everything that's moving relative to anything else, there, is, there are gravitational waves being emitted. And for, for galactic binaries that are close enough together with heavy enough stars, they become, those gravitational waves become strong enough to be, to be actually detected with this type of instrument. And there, are a huge, there is a huge number of sources there. We expect to see something like 10 million of, 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 of those types of source in our own galaxy, most of which you cannot see by any other method. And then if we move out to, uh, to this one, whoop, the, the, this, is, this, is, this is changing the scale a little bit, little bit where we keep one of these, uh, one of these um, uh, objects, a, a star-sized object, and we put it together with, with uh, a huge object at the centre of another galaxy, or maybe our own galaxy if we're lucky. So we know that at the centre of almost every galaxy we look at, there appears to be a huge compact object. Our own galaxy is something like a, a huge, an object that looks to be about uh, uh, a thousand million times the mass of the sun, but it appears to be very compact and, and the thoughts are it's a black hole, what we call a supermassive black hole. And it turns out that every galaxy that you look at has evidence that in its very centre it has a, 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 a massive black hole. And so, and so this object here is what happens if you have a massive black hole in the centre of a galaxy 
And then you have a star size object which finds itself a bit too close for comfort and, and gets trapped gravitationally within the, uh, within the region of the, of, the, of the black hole and, and orbits around it. And those we, 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 um, we refer to those as um, extreme mass ratio binaries because one of the, one of the uh, objects in the binary is a star and the other is a supermassive black hole. That's the other class of object I will talk about. Typically, uh, may be lucky and we may see something in our, from our own galaxy, but typically it will be from fairly nearby galaxies a bit further out. And then we have this, this, uh, this square here, which is actually the supermassive black holes at the centres of all the galaxies. And the big question is, how on earth do they get there in the first place? And the, one of the favoured ways of thinking of it is that they start out as smaller galaxies, smaller black holes, and then in the, during the history of the universe, they will have got close to each other and had collisions, and you will have then got the, the, the continual um, merger of successively larger and larger black holes. And so, and so that, if that process is going on, then we will see that actually happening in LISA, and that is our third category of, of, um, of source that uh, is there. All of these are uh, well studied and we're really confident that they will be seen by LISA. All, all examples of all those types will be seen. The largest type will be this one, something like 10 million. By the time we go to, to these things, we might be talking about 10 or 100 or so, um, and, and, and similarly with this one. Now, there is another splurge, uh, uh, source on this, on this image, which is this general splurge in the background. And that is um, a more diffuse source of gravitational waves, such as would have been created in the very early universe. So this is what we call a stochastic background, coming from all over the place, and generated by movements of mass in the very early universe. But that's a bit more difficult to quantify that, and there are different scenarios are more or less speculative about what we might see there. But so, so, so that would be a speculative uh, um, great thing to find, but, but not as guaranteed as the others. Um, so, so what I propose to do now is just, just talk in a bit more detail about, about these sources and, it, and, uh, um, and uh, exactly what signals we expect to see. Um, just before doing that, uh, just talk a little bit about this time. This is, this is the time after the... I mean, we, we believe that the universe started in a Big Bang, in a single point in time, or the, the start of time itself, when the universe came into being. And this is a time scale along here, 10 to the minus 44 seconds. I can't really explain that other than just saying the number. Um, and you don't get into the second time scale until you get to here, where this is 300 seconds. And this is 300,000 years and a, and a billion years and up to the present age, 15 billion years. And if you remember the types of sources that I showed you on the previous uh, plot, you can see the binary systems are obviously of our present age, so, so they're 15 billion years old since the start of the universe. Here are some of the merging galaxies which happened very early on in the life of the universe, comparatively speaking, a uh, billion years. And here is the earliest time from which we can see electromagnetic radiation from the universe. So this is the cosmic microwave background. Some of you may recognise that image. And that, hap and that was created 300,000 years after the Big Bang itself. And that is the earliest point in time we can ever hope to, to look back in, in the universe with a conventional telescope. Of course, the earliest time at which you might see a galaxy is another matter, and I may touch on that later. 
But the point with, um, with gravitational waves, and okay, I said it's very speculative for Lisa, and it is, but what we're, what we're witnessing here is the birth of a new era of observing the universe or listening to the universe. LISA will not be the last satellite to go up and, and detect gravitational waves. I can guarantee you that. Um, it might be in my lifetime, but it won't be in, for mankind in general. And, and when future missions go up where there is a guaranteed chance of seeing the so-called stochastic background, they will actually be looking at the universe when it was a minute fraction of a second old. In, if there's anything coming from inflation, and there are... There are fairly well-founded models that predict that there should be things to be seen. One is looking at 10 to the minus 32 of a second. No other way that we know of, of of probing that far back in the universe. So let me put a bit more meat on some of that. So, so this plot here is frequency and here is the strain that I mentioned previously, the delta L over L. So this typifies how, how, how um, what the size of the fluctuations in space-time is uh, as a result of some of these sources, as we would see if we had instruments in, uh, 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 to look at them. So some of you may have heard the, uh, the recent announcement from the ground-based community where we've, we've heard the first uh, little squeak from the universe. Um, and that's been detected by the ground-based instruments which are shown here. It's actually the, the advanced LIGO with improved sensitivity as, as, as seen a source. <clears throat> and you notice that that's operating in a frequency range here which, which uh, um, is about 10 hertz up to 1,000 hertz. That's the sort of frequency range for the gravitational wave signals that can be seen by the ground-based observatories. And, um, and that's a very high frequency range. And the types of object that you will see are typically things that are really at the end phase of their existence. They're just going out with a, with a, with a, with a spectacular final stage uh, um, uh, um, event. So it's the compact binary in spirals, which is the type of event that was actually just seen. It's the last, you know, uh, last moments of their, of their existence as they, uh, as they, as they coalesce into a, into a single object, or something like an explosion, like a supernovae. So, so that's the ground-based uh, um, uh, uh, observatories. Here is LISA. Um, don't worry about the fact there's also an ELISA here. Just, uh, um, just, just take in the general picture. So the three types of sources that I, that I showed you are the galactic binaries, the, 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 um, the, um, the supermassive binary um, mergers, and the extreme mass ratio in spirals, which are shown in different colours. I hope you can all see the colours. Um, and, and the way you interpret these curves is, is, is that this is a sensitivity curve which means that any signal that is above that will be seen. So anything that has, in terms of this one here, you come across 10 to the minus 22 as a delta L over L. Anything with a, with a delta L over L larger than that, and in this frequency range, will be seen. And the same with this, we're able to see anything in that range. There are also other ways of looking for the effect of gravitational waves in the lower frequency. Very low frequency. And note, note the frequency range here. This... The minimum here is typically around 10 to the minus 3 hertz. So 1,000 seconds is, is typically the, the, uh, the period, if you like, to which LISA will be most sensitive. And the point of showing this plot is to, is to make it very clear that 
the business of gravitational of, of listening to gravitational waves is not just making a detection and saying, "Great, they exist." Einstein was right. It's actually to study the universe, and and to and to study the universe. You can't do it with one detector on the ground, you because you can only span a limited frequency range for various reasons, and you really want to span a much larger frequency range and looks at all sorts of different types of objects that, that the universe has there to on offer for us to listen to. And it's no different to doing observations of the universe with electromagnetic telescopes. We use optical, we use infrared, we use x-ray, we use gamma rays, we use everything that the whole spectrum of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, of electromagnetic waves is used because it gives you different information every time you look in a different frequency range. And the same will be true for gravitational waves. Okay, this is, uh, th th this is, this is just, exp oh, let me, let me just say one more thing. So, so I meant, so for those of you that want to sort of get at the numbers, Lisa here, the, okay, 10 to the minus 21, shall we say, 22, 21. Um, it has a, an arm length of 5 million kilometres. That means that if, if you multiply 5 million kilometres in metres by that number there, you will find out how big the displacement is that we are trying to measure. And, and that's the number I quoted earlier on, that's about one thousandth the size of an atom between two test masses that are five million kilometres apart. But the reason we can do it is because we're looking for something that is changing periodically. We're not trying to measure that distance to that accuracy. We're just trying to look and see if it's changing. I'll skip that one because we've seen that already. Now, so, so um, what, one of the really staggering things about gravitational wave um, observations is the fact that you can, you can see further with gravitational waves than you can with electromagnetic waves for, um, uh, for a rather subtle reason. So, so what's plotted here is, um, oh, with gravitational waves, we're all about um, mass. It's all to do with mass. So what's plotted along here uh, is a typical mass scale of things that are to be seen in the universe. It's a logarithmic scale, so this is 100, 1,000, 10,000 million solar masses on up to uh, 10 to the 9 solar masses. And redshift here is a measure of distance, how far away they are. Now with what's shown here is, is, is how far away, how far into the universe will you be able to see with what, is, what, what are the future big telescopes being put together for um, conventional electromagnetic observations. And you see there's a thing here which cuts off, that's about a Z of uh, 11. And um, that more or less is the most distant object that's been seen in our universe, has a redshift, what we call a redshift of 11. Um, so uh, nobody knows whether there are lots more objects to be seen at a larger redshift or not electromagnetically. Um, then there probably will be. Here's, that's another big instrument. Here's advanced LIGO. Tiny little box down here. So this is, this is the grasp of the current ground-based observatories. <coughs> seeing things of, of the order of 100 solar masses and seeing them in the relatively nearby universe. Uh, there's, a, there's more planned for ground-based observatories or, or underground observatories, I should say, something called ET. I won't go any further with that. But there is LISA. That is what LISA does. It's this vast thing here that actually scoot in, in this particular way of plotting it, which is, you know, biased towards LISA, obviously. It, um, it, 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 it digs out a huge parameter space compared with any of the other instruments. 
One of the reasons for that is A, gravitational waves, you know, once they're, they're set off, they just carry on. They're not really impeded by anything. So, so they don't have any trouble travelling from the very start of the universe to, uh, to us, which would be up, up here somewhere. The second thing is that w the strain that we're measuring doesn't drop off with distance as quickly as the electromagnetic signal does. It only drops off as one upon the distance rather than one upon the distance squared, which is what happens with electromagnetic radiation. And that enables us to see uh, much more of the universe. Th these here are signal-to-noise ratios, but um, I won't dwell on that. I think I need... Anyway, so, so I hope I'm getting the message across there that, that gravitational waves really offer a fabulous new way of looking at the universe and, um, and uh, um, complementary to electromagnetic observations. So put the two together and you really have the most powerful thing that you can. It's a bit like watching the television with the sound off. We've been watching just the pictures and now we can put the sound on and uh, get, get, get much more information or different information. So, um, so here's the sensitivity thing again. Um, uh, here's, here's the numbers. Um, frequency along here, and the, the, the supermassive black holes sort of populate this region here. They evolve with time, so the signal that we hear from those will, will change its frequency, get higher and higher in frequency with time, um, and, and until the merger happens when, when effectively the gravitational waves stop. Um, and here are the galactic binaries here, mostly signals that are continuous, monochromatic, they won't change frequency for the most part, they'll just be sit, sitting there bubbling away at a, at a fixed free, each one at its own fixed frequency. And then here are the extreme mass ratio binaries, which are really interesting objects, because if, if as, a, as an experimental scientist, you could say, what is the one experiment that I would like to do in order to explore gravity? You would probably say, I would like to put a little test object with very low mass in the vicinity of something really large and, and interesting like a black hole, and just watch and see what happens. That's an ideal test case, and that's what you've got with the extreme mass ratio uh, binaries. Um, so each one in turn, galactic binaries, um, well, we know we, um, one example of a galactic binary is, 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 um, is, is the double pulsar, the, the famous double pulsar that, that won the Nobel Prize. And the reason it won the Nobel Prize is because they watched the, the, the orbital period of that system and saw that it was decaying and realised that it was decaying in a consistent way with the energy loss through gravitational radiation from that system. So that's an example of something where the presence of gravitational wave radiation has already been inferred by an, an indirect observation. Let's move on from there. This is a, a nice video of the uh, gravitational wave. The gravitational waves is the green. Is the green. This is obviously artist's impression. But the, so this is an, an orbiting system about to coalesce and the gravitational waves are given by the ripples that you now see in the space-time around it. So you really need to focus on those rather than the fancy graphics in the middle here. <coughs> and the point of showing that is not just to you know, show you a, a movie, it's actually to show you that the, the way this, this green space-time changes has been calculated with general numerical uh, calculation using general relativity. It's not just an artist's impression of what happens. So that was a real simulation of, of, uh, of, of a real distortion in space-time when two objects coalesce. And lo and behold, we now have verification of that because this is the signal seen by LIGO. It was announced just a few weeks ago. It was actually seen in last September, though. And, and what you can see here is, 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 is what we call the, the 
um, the in-spiral phase where they, they're getting closer and closer together and as they get closer and closer together they, the, the frequency goes up and up and up and then eventually they, 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 they start to merge um, which is around here and then because when they first merge it's not actually a perfectly circular object that's formed it merges into some elongated object to start with which then relaxes into a, into a, a spherical form you then get what's called on the back side here the, the, the ring down phase where the, where the thing then uh, becomes more spherical and, uh, and what you see on here is, is the actual signal and the, and the numerical relativity calculation overlaid and this one here is the difference between the two. So, so, so when you look at this, that if you see any regular departure, then you know you've got the model wrong. But if all you see is an is equal up and down sort of noise, if you like, then, then, then that's as good as you can do. So that was actually... Okay, that's a challenge. <laughs> so, so, so that was actually the merger that was seen by LIGO um, a few weeks ago. When we look at the massive black hole binaries... I may skip some of this if I need to. Um, they, um, they uh, uh, as I said previously, they, they evolve with time. And what they do is their frequency gradually changes, but gets quicker and quicker and quicker. And then when they actually merge, it switches off. Again, um, and as I say, the, the uh, concept that that's testing is that, is that the really big supermassive black holes that we see today have essentially, essentially built up through the successive merger starting at the top here of little small things that gradually merge and merge and merge, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <coughs> and there are observations, this is a simulation, there are observations that support that conjecture. And this is a simulation, again, it's a proper numerical simulation of what would happen. Uh, so the two supermassive black holes, one down here, one up there, have, have, are dragging along with them an accretion disk which is lots of hot material that is just gravitationally bound to them and, and that, that will eventually get dispersed by the, essentially by the gravitational waves pushing it away. Um, and this again is a proper numerical relativity calculation. So that's that one. And then, uh, and then if, this is effectively the same thing but, ju but just, uh, just altering the way in which it's displayed. And again, you can see nothing much happening until they start to get really close together. And then you can see the red, the red sort of haze around the outside is the gravitational wave emission. Until eventually, and it gets more and more intense, and then it merges, and then, and then everything quietens down and, and stops. Okay, so, so, so this, this, is, this is one of the early numerical relativity calculations for what that... that in-spiral merger and ring-down should look like, and you can see immediately the similarity with what I just showed you from LIGO. Here's the ideal experiment of uh, a single mass, a small mass orbiting a black hole. Look at the richness of the signals that are available there. Um, so, so this particular one would orbit for a long period. Sometimes you'll get others which will, accident, will you know, unfortunately get a bit too close, and they'll get swallowed up. And this shows what happens if one of those um, uh, um, objects... And, the, and we, will, we will start to see them about a year before they uh, finally meet their end. A month before, we'll, we'll have migrated along to here. We've still a lot of cycles left to, to listen to. And then eventually they go down. And this is, this is the signal from one of those. This is the one that is giving you the, the really characteristic chirp that you hear, which happens um, just, just at this point where it suddenly switches off. Okay, let, let me go on because time's getting on. 
um, stochastic background, I won't talk to that one because I think I should get onto the instrument. But the, but the, the, uh, the waveform that I played you right at the beginning, I won't do it again because I'm running out of time, but let me tell you what was in there. There were four massive black hole merger events, five extreme mass ratio in spirals, and 27 million galactic binaries. And if you listen carefully, you could actually identify a good number of these just by ear. And that was a raw data stream with all the instrument noise and everything. We will be able to do that with LISA data when it comes in. We will be able to pick things out by ear, as long as we you know, change the frequency range. Uh, but of course, the effective data analysis means you have to go and compute everything. And these, have, these data streams, as realistic as we can make them, have been produced and then given blind to other people to analyse. And they have success, successfully pulled out all these uh, sources. Oh, let me stop that because we don't have time. Um, so, can I just take five minutes? Okay. All right, well, so, so this is by way of now introducing LISA Pathfinder. LISA itself is a three spacecraft, separated spacecraft, five million kilometres, orbiting around the sun, but trailing the Earth in its orbit by about 20 degrees. And the orbital dynamics is arranged such that uh, you, you, you inject the orbits just right that, you, that, 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 they, that as they orbit around the sun, the natural orbit actually maintains the triangular configuration and slowly alters the, 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 the plane in which they're orbiting until you get round a year from the start and they're back in their original positions. Really clever orbit. And uh, in the spacecraft, in each spacecraft, there are two test masses, which are actually the... the, the, the these are the things that are really the, the test objects that are, that, that are being tracked with this mission. They're completely isolated inside the spacecraft. Nothing is touching them except the laser beams which are being used for the interferometry. So in each spacecraft, there's a laser beam goes off to the spacecraft over there, and a laser beam here goes off to the other spacecraft. And then, and then they join up around the outside. So what we did with Pathfinder is we, we were given the opportunity of putting a mission in space that we could test the critical bits of the technology. Because nobody would let us put three spacecraft up, costing whatever it costs, you know, doing something completely new in this way. So, um, so, so Lisa, five million kilometres, three, three interferometers, three spacecraft, this is what we're aiming to do. Pathfinder, we condense it down to, to 40 centimetres. We only have one interferometer. So that one interferometer there becomes 40 centimetres between two masses inside the same spacecraft. The, the requirement was that we get within a factor of 10 of what we need for Lisa in terms of sensitivity. Before the Lisa launch, we firmly believe that we could do significantly better than that. And you may remember that I said at the beginning that we've done at least as well as we expected to do. So, um, and, and the frequency range slightly, uh, slightly compacted to, uh, uh, to avoid having to test things really. And, and the, the, the three key slides now just showing you how it works. So we have drag free, which operates on one test mass. What that means is that this test mass is perfectly isolated inside the spacecraft. If we just left it there, it would eventually collide with, a, with, a, with its surroundings. But, so what we do is we have an interferometry channel that measures the distance of that test mass from the spacecraft, and then we have feedback from that fires thrusters on the spacecraft to keep the spacecraft um, uh, enclosure centred on the test mass. And it does it that way round. It keeps the enclosure centred on the test mass and not the other way round. So the test mass is actually free-floating. And then you notice there's a second test mass here, and what happens there is that there's interferometry between the two test masses, which is measuring this distance. And we then have a feedback loop here that applies forces to this test mass to keep it 
at exactly a fixed distance from this test mass. So that's the complete, uh, the complete thing. And then, and then uh, so, so the measurement involves using all of this information to, to, uh, to work out the relative acceleration noise that exists between these two test masses. And that's the nature of the mission that, we, that we're carrying out at the moment. So, summary, let's stop here. Um, so we have a new era of listening to the universe just started. And just like electromagnetic observations, we need to look at it in different frequency ranges. That's why I say that there'll be, there'll be missions, um, many, many missions in gravitational waves uh, eventually carried out. The ground-based instruments are high frequency, lower frequency accessible from space, which is where we're going, and LISA Pathfinder is, is indeed showing us the way forward on that front. I'll stop there. While we we change speakers, I'll just make a couple of announcements. So if you can swap microphones and so on. Just a couple of announcements. Um, uh, Due to the kind sponsorship of Airbus Defence and Space, we have a um, drinks reception at the end, which you're all invited to. So that is to be held in the Argyle room up on um, on the first floor. Uh, we will have more events this year. We haven't we haven't got dates yet, but they will be published on the on the society website when when we know them. And if if you want to get onto the mailing list, if you can leave your email address at the desk outside, I'll either give it to the society people or um, or leave a business card or something, then you can be put onto the mailing list as someone interested in future space events. So over to you now, Ian. Okay, I'll just get my top. Okay, so good evening, everybody. My name's Ian Holtzclair. I've had the pleasure, privilege of being project manager for Airbus in the UK and Lisa Pathfinder for a number of years now. And my talk is, I think, as far away from Tim's as you could possibly get, because Tim told us all about the interesting science. I'm going to try and tell you about the engineering difficulties. So why have we done all this? Well, it's really just to please one person who had a theory a hundred years ago. Before I go into the challenges, just to recap on the mission objectives, which I think Tim's already described, but we need to control the spacecraft to follow this test mass, which is free-floating, We need to control the motion of at least one of the test masses, which we do by electrostatics. And because we're out in a non-conductive medium, like space, the test mass will get charged up relative to the test housing, and it will be attracted to the test housing. If we do nothing about it, it will eventually be attracted so much it will stick to the... well, it will bump into the side of the test housing, and maybe it will be bounce off, maybe it will stick. That was one of our challenges. And we're measuring the test mass displacement to picometer accuracy, which, as Tim said, is very, very tiny. But the whole thing about the instrument is we've got to demonstrate this noise floor. Because if the noise floor is too high, you won't see anything at all. So I'll start off in a 
little light-hearted way of what constitutes an engineering challenge. Um, some might say it's the engineers. And <clears throat> that's, yeah, that is actually true to a certain extent because engineers love to do things down to the best they can possibly do. They don't sit comfortably with fit for purpose. The engineers say the opposite, of course. They blame the project manager. But they always say that it's a framework within, their, within which they're forced to work. So, schedule. It's always too short. Now, come on, guys, you had 12 years. <clears throat> Changes, there's always too many. With this, I have a good degree of sympathy. I just did a quick sum of the number of changes that have been agreed with ESA and Airbus affecting the project over these years, and it was 356 separate changes that we've had to, to deal with. Some of them, okay, minor. Some of them incredibly major. And industrialisation. Many engineers I've spoken to said, well, if you just get all the right engineers and scientists and put them in a room, lock them away, we'll do it in no time at all. And that's where we run into the problem of we don't have all the correct disciplines in one country, in one place, so we can't do that. So we are faced with um, having to look all around Europe, collecting all information, um, expertise from everywhere we can possibly find it. And if that's not enough, then there's some things that are just plain difficult. So let's just look at what plain difficult means in this context. Then, <coughs> excuse me, we have here a chart with, oh, we had there a chart. I'll get back to it. I must have found the fast forward button. Okay, we've got a chart that shows us what we've achieved to date in terms of sensitivity, noise floor, and what we hope to achieve by a microscope, and where Lisa Pathfinder lies within that band. And you can see that we're at least an order of magnitude, if not nearly two orders of magnitude, below the best that has ever been achieved before. Um, I have the internal budget, noise budget, for Lisa Pathfinder. And if we just have a look at that for a moment, just to look at what contributes to the noise. Then there's seven major contributors. We start off with the largest one on the, the left-hand side, which is the gravitational, sorry, the magnetic field. And that's not necessarily the largest contributor when we're actually in orbit. It's just the one that we have probably the largest uncertainty in when we're on the ground. So hence it's got a large assignment in this sort of budget. We've magnetic field, thermal effects, this is any temperature changes on the platform which feed into um, thermoelastic distortions, which feed into noise. 
Self-gravity is very much the same as magnetics, but it's looking at the balancing the gravitational pull of the spacecraft on the test masses. <coughs> um, one I like is Brownian noise. So this is, yeah, it's Brownian noise. It's the little things floating around on top of your coffee when you drop some pollen in your coffee. But in this case, it's the fact that you can actually measure the effect of the individual groups of molecules in the vacuum hitting the test mass. The test mass is two kilos. This, we're down in the, the level where we can <coughs> measure atomic interaction or molecular interaction with those test masses. Um, another one, laser radiation. We detect where the test masses are moving or accelerating by a laser. And you're almost now down with a sort of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. We're using a laser to measure, but in doing that measurement, we're actually disturbing the test mass. So there are some fundamental lower levels which we will really struggle to, to get below. Thanks to Europe, we've got most of the European countries involved, um, and also the states. The thing here is that, okay, it shows the countries, but in each country there's various universities, institutes, industries, all contributing to this program. I'm just finishing the, the program at the moment, and I have to close out nearly 40 major subcontractors. And that is on the platform. There was probably an equal number on the instrument. So it's, it's a massive task of interfacing, drawing everyone together, and getting them to work together. So challenges for a pathfinder. First of all, <coughs> we've got pathfinder here, the sun coming down on it. The Sun is equivalent to, or gives a, a force of about 30 micronewtons to the spacecraft, which will be driving it away from the, the test mass. So we have to compensate that. Um, like all spacecraft, we have to survive the launch environment. And maybe more particular, specific to Lisa Pathfinder, because we chose the, the smallest launch vehicle out of the um, Ariane's bus inventory, we had to squeeze all the flight equipments into a quite small box and that small box into a very small launch vehicle. Self-gravity, I've said, um, survive the space environment. Space environment is not just sun on one side, deep space cold on the other. There's a natural background radiation, but our problem with radiation was not the natural background at the Lagrange point where we're orbiting. It's almost negligible. Our problem was going through the Van Allen belts <coughs> several times because we had a, um, an orbit-raising strategy that took us through the Van Allen belts six times. We needed to do that because we were mass-limited on the launch vehicle. So we had to do our firings of the propulsion module on the bottom there six times 
Otherwise, we would never have made the, the Grange point. So it's a good balance. Then, necessary evils. It's a pathfinder. If it was easy, we would just take off-the-shelf things, <coughs> bolt them together, and have a nice working instrument. Well, because of the sensitivity we're looking for, it's not easy. So we've had to embrace some new technologies, and new technologies bring with them their own problems. And this is really about what we can use in building the spacecraft. Whatever we use, we've got to avoid mechanical, magnetic, thermal noise sources, and minimise the internal pressure. This was the sort of Brownian motion contribution. So I'll start on the, the system engineering, the, the top level. Um, we've got a, a picture of what we actually built. That's quite close. Um, <clears throat> the configuration for Pathfinder was difficult. You can see from the slide here that it's not the most easily accessible spacecraft inside. Um, in fact, it's exceedingly cramped. And when you come to build something that cramped, you find that you've got an order of putting things together which everyone must know and everyone must follow. So it actually ends up rather like one of these puzzles which entertains you over coffee of an evening where you try and put it together from all the bits that are lying on your, your coffee table. And equally, if you try taking it apart, you have to take it apart in a very precise order. Um, <clears throat> the launch, okay, orbit raising, I've already mentioned. You can see the, the six orbits here, all going through the Van Allen belts. The amount of radiation dose that we picked up going through the Van Allen belts is what a typical low Earth orbit satellite might see in about a year and a half of normal operations. We managed to accumulate that in under 10 days, which is not a claim to fame, but it's a, it's a fact. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Operations um, and how operations affect the configuration. So some satellites, particularly telecoms, you'll see the solar rays can rotate, track the sun. Some of the antennas will actually move, gimbaled. Um, we're not allowed to do any of that. So we've got a satellite where the solar ray has to track the sun and the antennas have to communicate with Earth without any of them moving. And I'll show you why they can't move in a moment. Um, <clears throat> we've managed to do that safe to say that we can communicate with the Earth, or we could possibly communicate with the Earth, for 24 hours a day. But typically we only do it eight hours a day because we've only got one ground station. And the other 16 hours of the day, the ground station can't see the satellite. Satellite can see Earth, but Earth can't see, or the ground station can't see the, <clears throat> the satellite. Um, 
So I mentioned that we have to survive launch. This is, I hope if it works, will give you an idea of how rough we are with the satellite when we go through the testing. This is a sign test that we conducted in 2011 at IBG in Munich when we built the spacecraft for the first time. Um, in the corner here, you can see the frequency. And what I'll show you, I hope, is a lateral sign. And the frequency will go from 5 hertz up to 100. So let's see if it works. No, let's try back. Right, we'll come back to this at the end and maybe we'll get. <coughs> something, something to work on that. Okay, the engineering constraints. We have no heat pipes allowed in the thermal control. We keep saying it's, we're looking at tiny little movements. Heat pipes contain ammonia or some similar liquid. And there's a liquid gas interface. Thank you. I've, it's okay, Phil. I did take one. Yeah. Um, which will move, and movements aren't allowed. No heater switching during instrument operation. Um, if you switch a heater, then although it may only change the temperature by a degree or two on board the spacecraft, it will take several weeks for the effect of that to start to, to go to invisibility because it's an exponential curve and we need to be down in microkelvin changes. It takes for almost forever, particularly if you're an impatient scientist. <clears throat> We can't use wheels for attitude control because they vibrate. Um, fixed solar array, I've done no mechanical valves during the instrument operation. They clunk, and again, they will just vibrate all the way through. And minimal thermoelastic distortions. Um, that's true at the overall level of the spacecraft. It's also true at the instrument level. So we've got the instrument here. Um, test mass housings, the optical bench, all suspended off um, very carefully designed carbon fibre struts designed for as low a thermal elastic distortion as possible. So on one hand, we forbid temperature changes, but to make absolutely sure, we make sure we build it of materials with almost zero CTE. Um, we talked about mass control. So the top pictures on the, the left-hand side shows you the spacecraft, internal panels at the top here. You can see some of the harness. It comes with little white dots everywhere. The little white dots are so that when we put in things that don't don't relate very well to drawings, like engineering drawings in precision, we can actually photograph the harness and then track it back to the little white dots and say, well, yes, it was exactly there, and it weighed this amount. And then that goes into our mass <coughs> records. And there's a big, complicated spreadsheet that gives you 
where the centre of gravity is. Um, the things that we have to measure, though, these are little tie wraps. I don't know whether you can see, but there's a number of them on this harness. So they're all about so big. You wrap the harness in some Teflon to stop it, stop it chafing. You then, or you've weighed that, you've weighed the tie wrap, and then you chop off the end of the tie wrap, and then you have to weigh that as well. So you know what mass you've got left on the spacecraft. Um, the mass recording spreadsheet has several thousand, tens of thousands of entries. <clears throat> um, we do very much the same with magnetic moments, only the magnetic moment has a static part, which we've measured in our sort of like 1950s um, magnetic moment measuring equipment. We've got three Helmholtz coils. Um, if we want to do the dynamic component, then we go to a box, which is mu metal, which of course is a great shielder for uh, magnetism. And in there, we would typically run the um, power supply unit or the thruster control unit, something that's got dynamics in it. And having done all that, we mount them in the spacecraft and we took the spacecraft off again to IBG to a magnetic test facility. It's a wooden magnetic test facility, um, wood, aluminium, no steel allowed for fairly obvious reasons. And to make sure that it's got this most quiet background, it's in the middle of a lovely forest. <clears throat> the plain difficult. <coughs> There's the electrode housing, test mass inside. Um, we need to measure the charge as it builds up on the, the test mass. Yeah, that, that's quite simple. We can do that. Well, relatively simple. We need to discharge the test mass if a charge builds up on it. In theory, that's also simple. You can shine a UV lamp at the test mass or at the housing, depending where you want to generate electrons, and you will reduce the, potential dif the differential potential between the two. Um, yeah, so that's also easy. But... But, but, um, all the test house surfaces and the test mass itself are incredibly reflective. So you aim the UV lamp at the test mass and hits the test mass first of all. And then of course it starts bouncing around the um, test mass housing. So do you know exactly what you're creating? Probably not. We've done lots of simulations. There's lots of uncertainty. And just to make it a little bit more difficult, then the quantum yield measurements, how many electrons you get per photon, um, have been subject to some incredibly large variations over the years. Um, orders of magnitude. And of course, if you're trying to work out a lamp intensity that you want, and you're a couple of orders of magnitude out in what you need, that's a big variation. Um, so just before we launched, a few months before we launched, 
probably had the last major change on the instrument, which was to change the algorithms for um, the control of the discharge. I'm very pleased to say that we changed them in the right direction as well. And fortunately, that was just software. Say so just software. Um, all right, new technologies and about turns. How am I doing for time? Yeah, about ten minutes. Okay, good. So new technologies and about turns. This goes back to 2004 when we first submitted the proposal to ESA. Um, of course, there was a lot of work before then in getting together the configuration, discussing what we should be doing, trade-offs. And we got to the stage where we had four candidate micropropulsion systems. On the left-hand side, we've got the colloidals, which were provided by JPL. Um, around this time, JPL were not only providing a thruster, or two thruster sets, they were also providing a drag-free controller, but that fell by the wayside fairly on, or fairly early on after contract signature. So we had an immediate change that we had to link the colloidals in with our DFAC system, our drag-free system control. Um, then what you really wanted on something like this, and also for Lisa, maybe even more so for Lisa, is a propulsion system that consumes very little propellant. Propellant's heavy and you need to get it up into orbit. Um, <clears throat> so favoured were the indium needle and cesium slit FIPS, electric propulsion. Um, at the time, it wasn't clear which one was best or, in fact, which one could be qualified. So we were running with two candidates for oh, quite some time. We also had a coal gas system on board. Um, so we had, in 2004, three major um, propulsion systems. Two thousand and five, the first, <clears throat> the first failure, coal gas. Well, it wasn't a failure; it was just too heavy. We were running out of mass margin, and something had to give. And the um, FEEP systems were looking very promising, so coal gas went. Next to go, two thousand and eight, it. There was a review within ESA which decided that the cesium FEEP was better, more encouraging, more likely to be qualified than the indium FEEP. <coughs> so the cesium FEEP was um, full ahead to try and finish the development of that. And we went full ahead until 2012 where it became very clear that we could not qualify cesium FEEP. The cesium FEEP has a particular drawback in that what you really want to do with all these systems is test them on the ground 
at component level. Now, the cesium for the cesium feet was contained in a tank. There was a burst disk which burst on orbit and released the cesium into the thruster. So if you tested that on ground, the cesium would be all the way down to the, the slit out of which the ions would <coughs> be ejected. And of course, as soon as you take it out of the thermal vacuum chamber where you've been testing it and expose it to air, because you need to fit it to the spacecraft, the cesium oxidizes. It's in the same group as sodium, so it's quite reactive. And once it's oxidized, you won't get any more cesium out of that slit. So it was a case of trust. We had to build a number of thrusters in which we trusted that they would work on orbit. 2012, we came to the conclusion that we couldn't actually build two that work sequ sequentially, let alone building about 17 so we could do batch testing. So we gave up. Um, <clears throat> we gave up and guess what? We returned to a cold gas system. <coughs> now, this was in 2012. I've showed you that we'd already built and tested the satellite in 2011. So this was very much a retrofit. It was a retrofit in a spacecraft where it was incredibly difficult to get things in and we had to take a whole load of things out. We had to take the harness out. We had to take the feet power supplies out. And of course, everything we took out, we had to weigh and take off the mass log. And then we had to try and fit everything in. And <clears throat> we started off looking at this thinking that it was impossible to do the whole um, Lisa Pathfinder mission because we just needed too much propellant. Until one of our team came up with a very nice idea that instead of having thrusters pointing in all directions, giving you control authority around all directions, we actually used the sun as one of the thrusters. So the sun pushes us in that direction and the thrusters at angle down push back against the sun. So we don't need control authority in all directions and that saved lots of propellant and that's allowed us to fuel the the satellite for about 17 months. Five, five, minutes. five minutes, right. I think I might be on time for months. <clears throat> um, another about turning technologies was the test mass housing and the release of the test mass itself. So you can see here the test mass. There's little hollows in each of the corner, each of the corners, and there's eight fingers that come down, connect to those corners, and they will release once on orbit and allow the test mass to be free floating. It's not quite right, but it's it's good enough. <clears throat> um, so we had a system whereby the fingers could retract, re-engage, retract, re-engage, which was ideal because we could do ground testing. But this was a hydraulically driven system, micro-hydraulics. 
the wells kept cracking, the pipe work got um, contaminants in it, and it just wasn't working. So ESA cancelled the, the contract for that, and we went to a different device, which was a one-shot wax actuator. So nice, simple wax like you've got in your, or used to have in your thermostats in your car. Heat it up, yep, opens. But it's one shot. So you can't reset it easily. Um, when I say easily, to reset it, we would have to remove the core instrument, strip it all down, strip it down to this level, reset the wax actuator, build it all up again, test it at instrument level to make sure that we haven't done anything wrong, retest it at spacecraft level, and that was six to eight months. Um, so we had a very, very, very forbidden command on the spacecraft, which was banned from all databases, and we survived intact till we got into orbit, and then we released the test mass, and it worked fine. The other change that was made at that time, I've mentioned, and um, go back to this Brownian motion and the vacuum inside the test housing. At the beginning of the, the program, no one was sure that we could actually achieve a hard enough vacuum in space by just opening the test housing to space. Sounds not right, but yeah, it's right because of off-gassing, out-gassing. Um, there was definite concerns. So we had a system where, on the ground, we drew a vacuum, sealed it. We had getters inside the housing, which would try and remove the, the final um, molecules. But I think things had moved on and when we got to 2012, they'd moved on far enough so that we could start direct venting to space again. So the, the wax actuator also contained a valve at the bottom of the bottom here, which allowed everything to vent to space, which saved us a lot of vacuum servicing. Um, because clearly if you've got something on the ground for years, the vacuum will degrade. So every few months we had to vacuum service, and that is quite similar to the FEEPS in terms of complexity and challenge, because once you seal it, we had no way of knowing whether we've made a good seal. There's no pressure gauges inside. So again, it was trust. <coughs> New technologies and about turns. We finally chose a launcher, Vega, that was in its qualification. So if you're qualifying something, you expect some changes. And yep, sure enough, we had some changes from Vega to cope with. Um, I've put 2012-ish that we had a new user manual. Um, information was filtering out of Vega that 
maybe some things weren't quite as we saw in the user manual. And the first one we found was actually in about 2011, which was an increased shock spectrum. So previously we've been looking at shocks as generated by the separation system, um, the traditional spacecraft to um, satellite separation system. But Vega found when they measured shocks that actually the, the major shock was from the release of the fairing. So we caught that one early enough and we did a specific test out at IBG. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was okay. It meant that we had to go back and do an awful lot of analysis to demonstrate to everyone that we could actually survive the shock environment. We had increased acoustic levels, which was, by this time, of course, we're 2012, we've got all the equipments, we've specified them years ago, all the suppliers have tested to the levels that we've told them to, and now we have to increase the levels. Lots more analysis and only one or two retests. Extended sine frequency range. Previously, the frequency range went up to 100 hertz, so we tested up to 100 hertz. Vega came back and said, no, actually, we've got resonances above 100 hertz. Can you go up to 125 so this one we actually managed to <clears throat> battle it out with them and got a waiver. And then increased thermal flux. The thermal flux we're talking about came from the, the Z9 stage on Vega, which is up here somewhere. It's a solid. It has a plume, if I'm going that way, a plume that comes out like this, and the plume radiates back to the spacecraft. And we were finding that our analytically anyway, that are nice thermal blankets which would tend to disintegrate at about 130 degrees. We're getting up to 200 degrees. So rather late in the day, we had to reclad the spacecraft in a whole new um, coat of blankets, high temperature blankets. But we got over all of that. Oh, yes, last one, sorry. Revised trajectory constraints. So this wasn't the first Vega mission to launch east. I've got one more slide after this film. I'll be good. Um, but we did have a renewed constraint that Ariane Spass wanted to make sure positively that they weren't going to kill anyone in Kourou, the launch. So we had a bit more of a dog leg to do than IXV did before us. And this meant that the fallout zone from a a failed Vega, would just happen to be in the office accommodation that we had in <clears throat> the launch site and where we had all our EXI, which was controlling the spacecraft. So three weeks before launch, after some, you can imagine, fairly irate conversations with the Launch Vehicle Authority and the Kness Safety Officer, we had to move lock, stock and barrel about five, ten kilometres down the road to a different facility. We had to take all our exit with us, unplug it, revalidate it when we got there, um, all without a slip in the launch date. <clears throat> so, and finally. Well, after all of that, the launch was perfect. 
the LEOP was also perfect. The in-orbit commissioning was perfect. We didn't raise any significant NCRs in any of these. We kept to schedule. In fact, we were a day early finishing the in-orbit commissioning. Things that we thought would be a problem, we had <coughs> um, looked at before and made sure we could um, live with them. One of them was going through the Van Allen belts. The Star Tracker as a CCD suffers radiation damage. And we expected that. The supplier, Terma, said, yeah, okay, we always see that. We can correct it after you've been through the, the belts. And they did. This was a view, a picture from the Star Tracker before going through the, the belts on the left-hand side. In the middle, oh, I'm sorry, you can see one or two stars, maybe. Um, after going through the belts, it's noisy. You don't actually know which is noise, which is stars. So you recalibrate the star tracker, and it's almost as good as new. So we got there. And my conclusion is that, yep, we've demonstrated what we wanted to demonstrate. We've proved it's all possible, so we're ready for Lisa. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.